Hey there, this is Robert Leeshock, best known for playing Liam Kincaid on Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Genretainment here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. Although you will notice some differences because we have moved away from Block Talk Radio uh, in celebration. We have recut our last episode on the old site for your listening pleasure. In case this is your first time listening to us, we are your hosts, Marks. And Julie, and Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's show, we are chatting with Richard Cutting, the creator of the UFO mystery series Milgram and the Fast Walkers, plus a bonus interview with the cast and guest stars of Warehouse 13. Cutting talks to us about his award-winning series, his views on the future of web television, and we even talk in detail about UFOs. Ooh. Also, we're in the middle of Sci-Fi Channel's Warehouse 13's newest season. Yes, and we have bonus audio from interviews we recently had with stars Eddie McClintock and Joanne Kelly. Plus, we talked to recent guest stars Missy Pyle, who you may remember from The Artist or Galaxy Quest. And we have bonus audio from interviews we recently had with stars Eddie McClintock and Joanne Kelly. Plus, we talked to recent guest stars Missy Pyle, who you may remember from The Artist or Galaxy Quest, and who may or may not be related to Mark's. And Enrico Calantoni, who we absolutely loved on Veronica Mars. And I'm not related to. You're not related to her? Can we just Enrico, say Enrico, I mean. Enrico. Oh. <laughs> of course, it wouldn't be funny if I was related to Enrico, but not, not Missy Pyle somehow. That would be strange interesting. strange twist of fate. Yeah. <clears throat> and suddenly you'd also be part Italian. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could happen. You, you could. Know. Now, before we get started with our first interview, we do want to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song of our web series, Reality on Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. Now, you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, let's get started with our first interview for this episode with executive producer, writer, and actor Richard Cutting. Entertainment, and this is Marks and Julie, and today we're speaking to the creator of the UFO mystery web series Milgram and the Fast Walkers, Richard Cutting, who not only stars in the show but also directs and writes as well. Uh, welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you. Thank you, Marks and Julie, for having me on. So let's start at the beginning. Could you tell us just how the idea of Milgram and the Fast Walkers came about? Well, it's a sort of a funny story. A friend of mine came to me one day knowing that I was a writer, and I... I uh, was writing feature films at the time, and uh, he said, uh, "What about UFOs?" And I said, "Well, what about them? I, you know, why should I care?" And he said, "I just read something interesting that half of the American public believes in UFOs, which you know caught my interest because as writers, as you you know, we're always looking for strong conflicts in opinion, and if half the country believes and half doesn't, there might be something there. So I waded into it." And, it was kind of like pulling the thread on a sweater, you know, you, the more you evaluated it, the more interesting it became. So that was kind of the genesis of it. So you really weren't that interested in UFOs up to that point? Because I know you're interested no, you now. Know, <laughs> you, you, well, this was quite a while ago, so I've been at this. That, that was probably back in the mid-90s, you know, mm. um, and uh, I'd written 
different stories, but I'd never covered UFOs. And no, I never really, I mean, I was a sci-fi geek since a kid, obviously, but uh, I hadn't really focused on that topic. So. Oh, cool. Now, what, what does the term fast walkers mean? Well, fast walkers is a, a term from actually from the U.S. Air Force, and it describes objects that either enter or leave or both the, uh, the atmosphere at great speeds that are unidentified, you know. I never really heard that term that much for UFOs. Like that. It's pretty cool. Cool term. Yeah, and you said that was the mid-'90s. I remember back whenever uh, X-Files was still on the air, and, you know, X-Files would be on, and then our local news would come on, and, and I remember a news story where they had crop circles over a next state over, and <laughs> it was really interesting. Well, yeah, you know, Indiana is a is a home is the home of one of the most famous incidents of of, of crop circles for sure. But of alien abduction, there was a case, uh, the Debbie Jordan case, uh, which Bud Hopkins, who was a big, big one of the top guys in the alien abduction mm-hmm. part of that UFO phenomena, uh, and she was uh, a beautician, a cosmetologist who was serially abducted, and uh, turns out was a family history and. Uh, that was the uh, the interlude at Copley Woods, which is a fairly remote part of Indiana, and it was a very big case at the time, mm-hmm. back in 91, 92, something like that. Yeah. Oh, oh and what was that movie? There was, it was like Fire in the Sky or something about the, a group of men that got abducted and people didn't believe them? Yes, that's the Travis Walton case, also a very, very big case. Uh, yeah. there, there were, I believe, four or five guys in a pickup truck coming home in, I think it was either Washington or Oregon, and they stop, they see a light in the forest. One of them gets out, Travis Walton, and he approaches the light, and all of a sudden he disappears. There's a flash, and he's gone, and then the other guy's terrified, driving to town, and it turns out the, the investigation begins. He's gone, he's missing for something like a week. They begin to think that his friends might have engaged in foul play, and there's a whole drama domestically there while he's out. And his account is that he spent a week inside an alien craft, and then he appears stumbling down the road one night, and everybody had different opinions on it. But it is one of the the big cases, Mm -hmm. the Travis Walton case. Yeah. It's terrifying. Very scary move, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting goosebumps and chills up my spine just... uh you talking about it? Well, the idea of it's just someone can pluck you up away. I think I wonder if that's what animals, when they wild animals get uh, tranquilized and tagged in the wild, I wonder if they have alien abduction stories. Well, that that is a, a legitimate part of this investigation. You know, ufology they call it. That's the study of UFOs. There are people working multiple multiple disciplines of this. You know, there. There are people who only analyze soil samples. There are people who do the alien abduction stuff. There are people who do aeronautics, meteorology, you know, photo analysis. There's so many subdisciplines, and one of them is the story that uh, of cattle mutilation. There, there are many, many cases, particularly in the American West, where cattle are found, and it's kind of gross. They're found surgically uh, mutilated with extreme precision, and some of their organs are... Uh, are removed uh, in the middle of a field in, in a place where to do the kinds of incisions and surgical work that's done on them and their blood is drained, for instance, would require, you know, apparatus that's A, either not known to be available or B, 
would be very cumbersome and noticeable in that environment out in the middle of a you know a thousand acre farm and this mm. is a, a matter of great contention because you know those cattle are expensive and the farmers out there the cattle farmers are out of their minds with uh, this issue because for them it's a very practical matter who's who's killing my livelihood you know mm-hmm. and so it's very serious and there's a there's a, a ufologist by the name of Linda Moulton Howe who has done extraordinary work covering that for years and years so this issue of animal animal mutilations relating to potential UFO involvement is a, is a very big area of study mm-hmm. hmm. so what do you think what do you think about UFOs personally do you think they're aliens they're because I've heard everything from aliens Government experiments, aircraft, alternate reality, alternate reality, time travel, fairies—you <laughs> never know. What's your yeah? What's your feeling? Well, you know, I've never seen one, so I I don't have direct personal evidence of of a phenomena to refer to in my own mind. You know, so everything I know about it is is, is called from looking at technical evidence or videos or. You know, accounts. I've, I've interviewed lots and lots of people who've had experience with the phenomena, both just you know witnessing something in the sky to people, many people who claim to have had the actual abduction experience. And um, there is something going on. You know, it, it may not be the sexiest answer in the world, but I, I just don't know because the phenomena is is you got to break it down into what you're talking about. Are you, are you talking about are there unidentified flying objects from other places in, in outer space other than the Earth, that's one whole area of studies. Are, are, are they intelligently controlled? Are they abducting people? These are all very specific disciplines of analysis. And, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to tell where our black project experimental technology ends, where maybe a weather phenomenon is, is to account or an optical phenomenon versus something that's legitimately extraterrestrial is truly an unknown area, but I will tell you the evidence is, is mounting up that there is something hard flying through the sky where you can get a radar return off it that is performing physical acts that we can't do that we know about and being reported as such by multiple witnesses with the technical expertise to have the confidence to say that that's an accurate set of data. There's a case down in Chile that's astounding where short about it, they were having the changeover of what the equivalent of our Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was a private, secure ceremony where all the generals and admirals are standing there on the, you know, cutting a ribbon or doing whatever they do to transfer one general to another. And they look up in the sky and there's a couple of things flying around up there and they scramble jets and they're getting hard radar returns and these are military people and the families are rolling multiple cameras on it. And the Chilean government decided to release it all. To, to just say, this is what we saw. So there's a lot of evidence points in some direction, you know, mm-hmm. and there's many, many cases like this. You know, that first thing that pops into my mind is, what if they're like alien tourists and they just wanted to go like see the ceremony <laughs> and just kind of observe and they got caught, you know? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is they danced around with the jets apparently. I mean, they, they would stay stationary enough for the jets to approach and the jets would lock on and, and get a radar return and then they would just inch away, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, really you kind of wonder, you know, I mean, like we as humans will like to go on safari and, and go out and see these wild animals in their natural habitat. You almost wonder if there's not 
maybe something else out there that thinks of us the same way. <laughs> well, right. You go to motive and intention. You know, are they here just to see the, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower, or do they have some other agenda, or are they just passing by? Yeah. It's, yeah, are they tourists uh, or big game hunters, I think, is a big concern. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it's funny. Stephen Hawking came out, uh, I think it was last year, and uh-huh. said, you know, uh, you're probably want to think through communicating with these things because the history of colonization from a superior culture to an inferior culture technologically has not been a good history, you know, so. It never ends well for the other end of the shtick, does it? Yeah, so it's worth thinking about. Yeah, Ewoks Ewoks managed to kick serious ass somehow. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Huh. I'm trying to remember, there was several years ago, I remember watching on the morning news, they said there's these lights over a major U.S. city, and and it was big news, and then I tried looking it up later, and like you couldn't hardly find anything on it, but they had video of these strange lights that were just hovering above, in like triangular formation over the city. Oh, you got me going now, because that's the Phoenix, probably you're yeah, referring to the, the Phoenix, Phoenix, the Phoenix light was. case. But I could have sworn there was one over, like, the New Jersey Turnpike at one point, too. Well, yes, it was. There was. Um, There there are, like, landmark cases. The Phoenix Lights case occurs in about March of 97, and there's a sort of low-flying, mile-wide, V-shaped formation of of orbs, and and, and a craft glided sort of quietly overhead, and at least 10,000 people saw this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It covered about 300 miles from Nevada through to Phoenix on the edge of Tucson, and uh, it was sort of like a a huge carpenter square shape, Mm -hmm. and uh, it contained five spherical lights and possibly light-emitting engines. One of the interesting stories there is that Fife Symington, who was the former Arizona governor, appeared shortly thereafter and and sort of laughed at the whole thing. But later, he said that he witnessed it, and what he saw was, he quotes, otherworldly. That's a very big case. Yeah. Now, what was, was there something over the New Jersey Turnpike, or am I somehow getting my... Things scrambled. Yeah, that's at the edge of my memory there, and that's I don't I think that's uh, more recent too. Um, I, I'm trying to think of that circumstance, but there, there were multiple witnesses. Um, when, when was that? Um, yeah, but I remember it was like big news, and all of a sudden they went, "Oh no, it's nothing," and then you couldn't find anything on it anymore. <laughs> well, that you bring up an interesting issue because some of these are accounts that get reported poorly, you know, and they tend yeah. to go away or they get picked up in sort of individual blogs. But, I don't know if it was that one or the Phoenix one, but wasn't there one or more where the military said it was like experimental like flares? Oops are bad. <laughs> well, experimental well, flares. With the Phoenix lights, apparently the military tried to say that it was flares, you know, hmm. uh, but the way that the reports went and the photos went, that flares don't you know they move independently depending on the air pressure and the air movement? I don't remember these looking flare-like. Yeah. <laughs> well, and after yeah. so many years, if these were experimental flares, they would pop up eventually. We have them there. by now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, um, you do you remember a few months ago there were those sonic booms that were being heard all across the country? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think is is Mufon? I mean, no, you're a, a member of Mufon. Was there any 
thing done on the MUFON front or is anyone thinking that might be uh, UFO related? Any ideas on that? You know, I never heard so much about them being tied to UFOs. I, I, I heard something about it, and this is completely anecdotal, that they were tied to uh, some military uh, exercises or something, something hmm. very, you know, explainable. I don't know anything that tied it or, or any series of reports that tied it to UFOs. Because hmm. there was Although, a recurring oh, booming sounds in Indiana. Yeah, they had them actually in our, in our cities. They, people were hearing them. I didn't. We didn't. But other people had heard it, and uh, actually people called and reported an explosion on one side of town. They thought there uh -huh. was an explosion, and they sent out the fire department, and they were driving around <laughs> town looking for a fire at night, <laughs> and they couldn't oh find one. Because people wow. people called panicked, thinking that like you know a meth lab had exploded or a gas leak had exploded, and it shook mm -hmm. their homes, and they were concerned, thinking that some you know there was an explosion, and they didn't think sonic boom. They were thinking, you know, got to call the fire department. Someone it was said. multiple days, too. It was in the, it was in the yeah, news. Yeah, it was several people nights. People kept asking days. why it keeps happening. And then that was around the time whenever it happened in Hollywood. Then I thought they were asteroids. Well, there could be. Well, for instance, I just. Not too long after. I, yeah. <laughs> you made me curious, and I just pulled up something on Sonic Boom. I mean, here's a, an account from, uh, I don't know, it looks like 2012 at some point uh, or yeah, 2011, UFO triangle disappears causing sonic boom in Arizona. I mean, I, I, I don't know that there was a trend in the reporting of the sonic boom phenomena, which I, I do well remember tying it to UFOs. But the, the point is the reports of some of these crafts, their speed, their angle, and, and their exit of the atmosphere certainly could cause a sonic boom hmm. based on radar and hard data, you know, that they do things that are just you know, would cause a sonic boom, you know. Well, I remember years ago, it was a long time ago, I was in high school, I heard the first time I heard a sonic boom, and it was a meteorite. And in fact, one actually hit these poor people's car in town. Oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> we heard this boom, and, and it took a long time, and finally it was on the news, and they're like, yeah, it was a meteor, and it hit somebody's car. And they were like, we're not sure if our insurance covers meteors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you felt kind of bad for him, but even they were sort of amused, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because how many times is that going to happen? I'm knocking on wood. Statistically, <laughs> pretty improbable. Yeah. I'm assuming Milgram and Fast Walkers is pretty accurate based on the studies you've done. I mean, they represent some of the research you've done. Well, yeah, it's it's a great question because there is a lot of what I tried to do was combine two genres. One was soap operas, and the other was a, a good hard look at UFOs. Now, you know, you're, you're at slight cross purposes there because, let's face it, we are producing a drama. But what I really wanted to do, and I premiered the show actually at a UFO conference, one of the biggest ones in, in the Ozark, uh, the Ozark UFO conference in 2012. Uh, and I made a promise to the, a lot of ufologists there, whom I know personally, that I would, as best I could, in a dramatic setting, present the themes and the facts of, of UFOs in a way that was as accurate as I could. And I found that my angle of approach on that dramatically was to look at how this alien intrusion, if you will, affects the personal lives of people into which it, it comes, you know. And and um, so I wanted to take it from a personal drama. You know, if you're a psychiatrist like Milgram and you're 
going along and having a perfectly good career, and then all of a sudden walks in your, someone walks in your office who appears credible and otherwise sane, says, I'm having this experience, <laughs> what does that do to you, you know? Mm-hmm. That was sort of my way of being authentic at the same time as trying to produce a drama that people would find engaging. Yeah. yeah. And I, I found it interesting, you know, in the first episode where, um, you know, the woman gets abducted, she's like sort of almost being pulled out there, but she's saying like, oh, I need to close the window and this and that. So it's almost like her mind is sort of getting pulled in two different directions. Well, good. I'm glad you got that because this is a direct, you know, as best I could write it. It is dramatic, obviously, and and it's fictional, but from multiple accounts from abductees that I've talked to, there is this sort of uh, presence that you first feel. There are stages to this that at first you sort of shake your head and you know something's not right. You know, it's an intuition. And then there's almost sort of like a, a, a silent beam in your head or, or a hum in your head where all of a sudden you, you feel like you've got to go out to the garage or the barn or someplace. And then you look out the window and Debbie Jordan in Indiana reported that she looked out her window and saw deer. And then she looked closer and they weren't deer. Mm. They were um, they were aliens. And that, that there is some effect on the brains of these abductees whereby they are in a, sort of an out-of-focus state that, and, and in a sort of a, attraction state toward the object that needs to see them. Hmm. It's slightly different with each one. Some of some people are just paralyzed in bed and they're lifted out of their beds and all of a sudden they're taken aboard a ship. Others will stumble out and, and walk into the experience. It's kind of like an ant trap kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah drawing yeah. you there. Man, well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of discussion in that world in the alien abduction verticality or the specialization, if you will, about the way that they, if you believe in this, have a very, very deep understanding of the way our neurologic tissue works and that they can manipulate that at will and that they can, whatever it is, through some microelectronic or, or, you know, phase-type physics, they can actually directly address the brain and do things like put memories in your head or show you visions or make something look like something else. I mean, this is there are multiple accounts of this. Now, do most, from your research... Can you tell, do most alien abductees have memory of the incidents immediately? Is this something that comes out later, like a repressed memory? How how do they experience this? Do they remember everything that happens to them, or are they almost in like a drugged state? Well, it's, it's all over the lot. Some of them have vivid, vivid memories uh, pretty much in real time. They'll get back and they'll wake up and, and they will have memories like you would have memories of going to a baseball game or a barbecue and to the extent that they're good at remembering anything like I would remember a barbecue they will remember what happened but as often as that you will have people who don't remember anything they'll be driving along a road and then find themselves just blinking and shaking their head and continue driving down the road, only it's four hours later, and they're 30 miles away from when they close their eyes. Hmm. And the experience that happens to them in between those hours is only recoverable over time, either spontaneously, it it comes up in a dream, and then they have a waking memory of it, and then if they persist to, to sort of fight back into what happened, they can recover it, you know, fairly fully on their own. 
or often they are hypno-regressed and taken into a, you know, a hypnotic state by a trained hypnotist to, to sort of recover these memories and talk about it, and then that's taped, and then that's played back to them, and then they begin to have that conscious process engaged. And there is great debate about the accuracy of hypno-regressed memory recall. This is Well, yeah, you know, not just with alien abduction, but with anything. Yeah, it's not admissible in court usually, and mm-hmm. it's there's a real tooth and nail fight about whether it's valid evidence of anything at all, you know, and mm-hmm. then there are people who absolutely believe that it is a valid and credible tool, and I, I don't weigh in on it because I think you have to look at the whole experience and other sets of evidence and piece together, you know, as factual an account as you can, and I don't dismiss it out of hand. I don't give it a great deal of credibility because I, I think parts of it are questionable, but I, I don't dismiss that out of hand at all. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of that is meant to relieve the suffering of the people who have, who have encountered this. You mm-hmm. know, this, this, however you can get to those memories, if they are true memories. And then there is the whole other wrinkle, which is, are these memories implanted by, you know, let's say this isn't a, an extraterrestrial thing. Is there a program of taking people, for practicing these techniques on them and pl- implanting memories in them? You know, mm-hmm. I mean... Or if you didn't you know, have a very it, credible therapist and, and they either intentionally or more likely exactly. unintentionally, you know, unintentionally would guide you, steer you in a certain direction in that state of mind. Exactly. And yeah. that is the big contention with hypnotherapy or hypno-regression, rather, mm-hmm. that you have either, uh, you know, incompetent or malicious uh, people doing that. So it is a very dense area to try and explore and tease out what's really happening. There there are a few people who are known to do it. They've done a lot of casework on this. and It is their specialty to hypno-regress alien induction cases and... If they were charlatans, they probably would have been shut down. So yeah. there are three or four people who are known to do this well. So hmm. Now, besides Milgram, is there any other popular TV shows or movies that you could say might try to be kind of accurate? Or, the, or do you feel a lot of them are really, for dramatic purposes, I'm sure, just kind of going all different kind of directions? Well, you know, there was a there's a series out now. I can't pull it up to memory. There's a, there's this sort of uh, alien. Uh, there's a new program that does case studies of you know this person was abducted, and, and it's kind of like the FBI files where they do reenactments, and these seem to be pretty accurate. Uh, and they map over the accounts that I've heard pretty accurately, but they're not you know they're not dramatic series. They attempt to be. Um, recreations, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of all the programming I've seen that has, it, you know, when Hollywood gets involved in this, it's very hard to stay away from over-dramatizing it or being inaccurate because, you know, let's face it, the, the business is to have fans and, and mm-hmm. audience. And so, you know, a lot of this is, is very technical stuff that isn't necessarily dramatic. Um, but among the ones that I think there was a, a show called The Intruders uh, back in '92, I believe, with Richard Crenna. It was a miniseries, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, Taken was, I think, a Spielberg project, which had elements that were quite interesting and, and addressed the very uh, important and interesting aspect of alien abduction in that it seems to travel in families over time. So if you were abducted, chances are either your mother or father were, and perhaps their mother and father before them. It seems to stop 
somewhere around 1900, and maybe it's because they weren't reported, or it seems to travel generationally. Hmm. And Taken covered that aspect of it really well. And Fire in the Sky was was pretty well done, too. It was dramatic. And Travis Walton, I've heard him say that some of the stuff that happened on the ship bore no resemblance to what actually happened to him. But um, So there are there are some, some programs out there that treat it, elements of it fairly. And again, I go back to why I picked the psychiatrist and trying to stay in the personal life, because I, I'm very interested in the conflict that it causes in, in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For us, it's it's something dramatic or storytelling possibilities or something to talk about what if scenarios. But for some people in the world, it's very real to them. And I don't know how you'd function. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like yeah. if something like that happened to you and you knew it could happen again, how? Like I have insomnia as it is. <laughs> I cannot well, imagine. Is, Julie, that is a, a re, a, the heart of the matter for these folks. This is this is multiple traumatic incidences over which they have no control and over which they see no end. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, it's very analogous to war veterans for people who express it out in the open when they talk about it. It's I went through stages of coming to grips with this, and in fact, uh, you know to tout the show blatantly, uh, I have an episode coming up. We're going to do a three-episode season finale in the next few weeks in which we go into that issue quite heavily, you know, uh, what it's like for people talking about this directly and how they cope with it, knowing that they could be taken at any time and they can't stop it. Do they usually get abducted their entire lives, or does it stop after a certain point? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Wow. It, it it may stop when you get older, but you, you can find uh, probably a bell curve of most of these cases start when they're, you know, anywhere between five and ten years old. Some There are cases reported at 18 months. Somehow people know that about themselves. I don't, I don't know how that data wow. is acquired. But, and then it continues through adult life. And for women, it continues over the reproductive life. There's a whole line of this that's tied to reproduction and genetics and stuff like that. So. Hmm. Now, in your in your research, the experiences that people remember happening to them while they're abducted, how much of that, how did you decide what to cover in your show, in your series? You know, I imagine there's probably more than one type of story about people remembering what happens to them. Well, interestingly enough, the alien abduction experience, if if the cases are piled one on top of the other into the thousands, which they are now, and there's there's a couple of guys uh, that have got that kind of caseload where they can actually do statistical analysis of the kinds of events that happen along a timeline and compare similarities or differences, the alien abduction experience is, is uh, remarkably consistent. And so when you know what that experience generally consists of, then that's the story we tell, and that is the story we will be telling. Uh, hmm. We haven't, you know, as you know, season one hasn't really waded into that yet. Yeah. I wanted to get all the characters and have people, you know, understanding who's involved here, uh, but we will in season two get into that, and, um, you know, these people are taken, they're taken on board a ship, they're examined, uh, sometimes they are shown things on board the ship and then they are taken back, you know, and sometimes you know, just dropped off on the corner with their pajamas on backwards. I mean, there's 
<laughs> Not a good travel agent up there, huh? <laughs> uh, it's rough out there. <laughs> now, when, when people report seeing an alien when they're abducted, is it always like the classic gray type alien or are there other kind of aliens? The weird shaped saying? head or the big eyes or... Well, this is there's more variation there. There, there. If you talk to these people, there's uh, there are races of aliens uh, with different agendas, with different looks, with different types of crafts. You know, something that's somewhat consistent is that there's there's usually a, a, a one or a team of what they call gray aliens that can be anywhere from say three to four foot tall, and they are the standard gray aliens that you see on keychains and t-shirts and, you know, the, the, the standard acne standard gray alien. And they are the, the sort of the, the team that extracts the person. And then they are taken up and they meet another sort of usually taller, different looking alien who does the work on them and then uh, and has a relationship with them. And they have a relationship with them that's over the, the, the arc of their life. And then what they do are they usually the, look like? Well, they have been reported as sort of like the greys, only a little bit more, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe larger heads, bigger eyes, and sort of more of a commanding presence. Uh, you know, they can be referred to as the doctor or the examiner or something. They do, the abductees report a differentiation between the people who do the examinations and the greys, although the greys attend this process, too. The greys seem to be somewhere cross between an orderly and a uh, you know an extraction team sort of thing hmm. and um, and then there are also other aliens that they meet who um, there's many races according to the abductees there's the reptilians and they look like reptiles you know they look like like what we would call reptiles uh, only they're they're bipedal most of the time and they're highly intelligent they communicate telepathically there are also what they call Nordics which are aliens that are slightly larger than the average human being, maybe seven feet tall, and they look like people from Nordic countries, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, but they have a sort of alien swept back face that clearly lets you know that uh, they're not from Norway. <laughs> um, and But there are reports of aliens that are three inches tall and very vicious. Uh, there are reports of aliens mutilating humans. That, that There are reports of, of uh, different forms of aliens with different agendas. Hmm. The small ones are fairies. In my fairies. Well, they used to have uh, reports back in the 1800s of fairy abduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, you know, if... They wouldn't if, have thought of if, aliens. If people are getting abducted by aliens throughout history, then I, d- I doubt the concept of aliens would make much sense, you know, no. a, you know, an older mankind. And so it would be have to be fairies or, or angels or demons. Or yeah, something. in each era they would have to try to put it in some kind of context well, so they could it, understand. You know, you bring up an, an, an important thing that, that back in, say, I mean, these things are reported back in the time of the great painters, the you know, Raphael and other, you, you, if you do a search, you can pull up alien images in classical art and you will see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Madonna and there's a spaceship in the back and there's a, there's a whole catalog of these things. And you're right, they were given, whatever the context of the time was, they were, if it was a highly, uh, you know, Christian religious environment, you know, Northern Europe or something, they would be called demons in, in the, the lexicon of, of the religion that was prevalent there. Or in the, the countries, they would be called fairies and so forth. 
and that there is an argument forward saying that because we live in a science and technology and highly, in quotes, rational age, that we are only just projecting our local historical bias by calling them flying saucers and giving it a tectoneer, you know, hmm. um, that we are captive of the same kind of bias that they might have been in, in uh 1700. In early balloon flights, you, you, you know, when aerial things started to happen in the 1700s and 1800s, that was sort of a crossover period where they left sort of the religious domain behind and became, start, started to think of it as mechanical devices that might be there. So that, that's a whole interesting area of interpretation of what these things are based on the mindset of the time and history, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you wonder in 100 years what they'll be calling it. If they'll still be calling it alien abductions or something else. I've, I watched Fringe, their alternate universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slipping in and out of the strand out there or something. Yeah, you never know. Who huh. knows? So, this has all been fascinating to talk about UFOs. We probably should talk a little more about the show, though. Uh, I tied it in there some. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk about UFOs forever, I'm sure. So. Uh, <laughs> it's fun, right? Yeah, you know, we're all geeks here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a lot of times what we ask web series creators when we interview them for the show is since web series is a new type of medium, you know, what what made you decide to try web series versus, you know, doing another film or, or trying to pitch it to television? Well, you know, I, I had the script and um, I just loved the story so much. Uh, and I met a lot of people in the UFO field and I felt that uh, if nothing else, I'd just love to tell their story. And it's so dramatic. And But I didn't have the means to do that. You know, financing a feature film is its own art form. You know, you've got to sit for meetings, get the film funded, do pre-production, shoot it, edit it, market it, and get it out there. And and that's a long pull, and I was starting to do that with the script. And then all of a sudden, this revolution in DSLRs came through, and the IT stabilized for the web, where you could actually push 1080p frames through it and have a viewing experience that was akin to a feature film experience. And then smart TVs smart TVs happened on top of that, where you could actually have a feature film experience that was off your, away from your laptop, mm-hmm. and then multiple platforms happen, you know, the, the phones and the iPads and stuff. And, and all that sort of happened, if you think about it, in a very collapsed period of time from, say, I, I don't know, I'm thinking 2007 or eight to right now. Yeah. And so I said, why not? And I knew everybody in the indie film world here in the Baltimore, D.C. area, and I just went around to a bunch of people that I'd acted with and said, hey, you know, you're a good actor. I've acted with you. Would you like to do this role? We've got these big cameras, and let's see how it goes. We shot a few, and they liked it, and we just kept going. And um, then we found out really what web series were about. I mean, I, I'd kind of known, but you know from your experience, if you talk to people about web series in 2007, which is when I really started, no, 2008, when I really started, nobody would really know what a web series was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it was a little hard to explain to people in the beginning that we're going to we're going to shoot seven to twelve minute episodes and people are going to watch it on the web. I, I had a little yeah. a few conversations. 
<laughs> oh yeah, we understand. When we were filming ours, you know, we got to the point where we're just telling people it's like a TV series only on your computer. You know? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and some, oh, sorry. Sometimes that worked, and sometimes it didn't. <laughs> yeah. You did write and direct and start in this show, and you have experience in all these things. Do you feel a pull more to working in front of the camera, behind the camera, or do you just like to do it all equally? Well, the, the thing is, as you know from being web series producers yourself, what you're constantly grinding against is how can I get this done? So every hire matters, every every job, if you can fill that, that seat, uh, matters. So when I found that I could do um, several jobs and, and not have to go through the process of finding, selecting, and briefing people, it made a big difference in terms of the, the speed at which I could get the production up, you know? Mm -hmm. So having written the material and having been a trained actor for so long, I realized, uh, I, I mean, I, I will be perfectly honest with you. Of course, I thought of myself as the lead. Why Why wouldn't you put yourself in your own picture? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it's, you know, on another basis as a producer, it's another hire I don't have to do. It's another casting session and who knows the material uh, that could carry it. So, that was done, and I'd worked with so many other actors that I, I knew what their... I'd been in indie films with everybody or something or other with everybody in the show. I mean, I've acted with all these people for years. So I knew their moves, I knew what they needed to hear, and I knew that they would be great in the roles, and indeed, it's turned out that way. They, these, these folks are all really good actors, and we really enjoy each other's company to begin with. Uh, the sets are quiet, professional, we get it done. You know, my, my DPs, Jim Ball and Josh Davidson, I've been working with them for years. And so it's, it's, it, it was a lot easier to just take the man along. I, you know, I must say, I don't get up in the morning wanting to be a director. I, I, I respect that job, but it just happens to be right there and do it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you seem, you've added this like soap opera connection to it. I know your Milgram has been in the soap awards, I believe. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, how that connection developed. I saw that you had some credits on All My Children, so I was wondering if that's like your early good choice. <laughs> well, my my that's... mother watched that from the time it started till you know the time it ended. And it's back now. It's yeah, it's back. <laughs> and uh, so I I watched it off and on over the years during the summers with her. So. <laughs> well, you know that, that I get asked that question a lot because who does a science fiction soap opera? And and um, as far as I know, there aren't that many. But I. I have tremendous fascination now with soap operas because of working on the All My Children set. Uh, I mean, that was such a wonderful experience for me. I mean, I had multiple under five roles, but I got to know these people. And most of all, I got to respect the difficulty. I call soap operas the Marine Corps of the entertainment business yeah. because, you know, these people walk down the hall, they're given 20 pages of text, and they're being handed rewrites as they go up to set and bang, they deliver it in two takes and it's moving on and they do it again tomorrow and they do that five days a week. I, I cannot tell you how hard these people work and how good they are at it. I have yeah, it really is like acting them. boot camp. I mean, if you can do that, then... <laughs> it really is. And they're, and, they're, and they're great people to work with, too. They're, they're a lot of fun. I did not meet one bad... I did not have one bad experience on any of those sets. And so I I came to the soap opera from the inside of it because I was casting them. I, I had never really paid much, to be honest, never paid much attention to soap operas. So I'm not one of those guys who can be uh, expositive on, on soap operas per se. 
But then I became a fan after that experience, so I, I started to follow soap operas, and I thought to myself, because I met these inductees and the dramatic nature of the way they talk to you, they're very quiet. You know, they're very, it's very much like a soap opera when you talk to them, because talking about this intensely dramatic experience in this way, and so it was a natural. And uh, so the soap opera aspect just... I came at it from being a performer inside soap operas, then a fan, and then marrying that to the genre, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, filming your show, your show's a little more serious than some other shows that we sometimes talk to, but uh, I was just wondering if there's, we usually ask them if there's any like funny stories on set, because goof-ups always happen, and uh, just curious if there's any funny story you'd like to share. Well, um <laughs> There's some, there's some harrowing stories. I mean, I, I ooh, we is, like those. Uh, well, you know, not in the the life and death sense, but uh, you know, you know when you're a web series producer that you're really in the business when you got everything set up and then your location fails or mm. you're you know you've got a everyone it's a it's a 98 degree day here in steamy Maryland and everybody's dressed in a white shirt. T-shirts, and then one of your actors walks on, and the poor guy has a wardrobe that you'd be very warm in the wintertime on, and and then the takes get delayed, it's delayed, and this guy is just standing there melting. I mean, in fact, Josh Davidson, the the guy who plays the man in the brimmed hat, who's a fabulous actor, he's a he's a producer, produces uh, films as well. We had to put him in this black suit, and he's got long hair. And we 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 put him in a in a bald cap and bald wig, you know. And he stood there for hours, just you know, as a puddle, waiting to go on. And he was so good about it. Everybody felt sorry for him at the end of the day, during that day of shooting, because it was a very hot day here. Oh wow! So yeah, you have stuff like that. That's just. Uh, you know, you wish you had the behind-the-scenes to watch the guy wilt in slow motion. <laughs> but, you know, when when his scene came up, he stood right in there and he did the shot, and it was great. Yeah, and we'll, that's a professional. And we'll see more of him. We, that's a professional, and we will see more of him. He's he's a key player in the next uh, season. Mm, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, well, we're talking about independent productions and, and web series. Uh, there was a little controversy. We like to, like, touch our base on you know current topics so there's a little controversy recently in the kickstarter community with uh some recent entries like veronica mars and, and yeah and zach braff zach braff yeah right uh just curious if you'd like to weigh in on that what, what's your feelings about that well you know i actually watched zach braff put out a video after that you know apparently he was taken by surprise that uh that people would have a response to him which I saw, I think I saw a few articles that were somewhat negative. And um, he explained that he's a guy who's been involved in online work for years and that he's actively involved in tweeting to his, his fans. And he considers online to be part of his life and that, you know, he just accessed Kickstarter like anybody else would. You know, I heard the, the, the comment that, you know, guys who, who are in his position shouldn't be using that instrument. I, I, I tend to think that, the premise of these crowdfunding platforms is for people to do outreach and fund the project regardless of who they are or what they do. And I, I subscribe to that. I think, I think there's a, a danger in limiting that to anyone because I think the nature of it is supposed to be fairly democratic. So I, 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 uh, 
you know, maybe I'm just a capitalist at heart. I think anybody can go, and if people give them money, then more power to them. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't really have a problem with it. I, I just know it's so hard to get a project going, no matter who you are, mm-hmm. that I give anybody credit for engaging this effort. So I, I say, you know, more power to them. And I think the whole argument itself, which I haven't seen tied to this, ties back up to the bigger issue and it relates to web series producers, I'm going to speak from that point of view, of, you know, when are we going to get a stable funding device that allows us to live and breathe like normal people in the entertainment business? I mean, you know, the the very little secret for us all, and I'll speak for myself, but I think it's, uh, you can project this, we fund these things out of our pocket, and we ask people to do things for us that you would never do in a normal business just to get the project up and to get our, our visions out there. When are the financial people going to walk into our environment and say, no, here's, you know, for instance, Wall Street guys say, no, here's a financial instrument that we've designed for you that will allow you to finance. And we're working on the back end to, to create a regular revenue environment for you. So that this whole idea of crowdfunding is, is a marvelous development, but, but it only addresses part of the issue of us having stable pools of fund, like the indie film people do, more or less, and certainly the studios do, and the networks do, to fund our projects in our own way. You know? and, and I think this is just a, a matter of the evolution of the business. So we're we're taking a snapshot of a business that is clearly in fast motion evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, crowdfunding itself is so new. And yeah, then, is, it, is it the future or is it just a band-aid uh, at the moment? And then really just uh, examples of the fear of Hollywood invading it have, have just happened in the last couple months. So, <laughs> so how <laughs> yeah. can you really know? Now, I think if everybody starts doing it, like every every star actor and B-star actor out there starts having projects every day, then, yeah, there's going to be a factor out. where it's going to crowd people out. But, uh, well, well, I think I, 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 would, I would project that, that if that happens, you, you always have the other side of the equation, which is at the end of the day, if a lot of people flood the zone, so to speak, at some point, it's gonna it's gonna be a buy side sell side kind of equilibrium that will be reached, where people, regular consumers, will say, "Well, you know, I've seen forty of these guys. I don't, you know, I think I'll stand back on this one. I think that would equalize out. I don't, mm. I don't necessarily see that as tearing the whole thing apart." Mm. Yeah, one man's opinion, you know. Yeah, you said you know this is very quickly evolving, and no one knows for sure where where, where this web series future is headed but where do you think the future of web series is is going to be how it's how it's going well, to change I, I think it's very bright i think it's very bright and i think there are factors that are provably supporting that that statement number one you know you watch kids and they've got an ipad or an ipod and they're watching it on their cell phone these kids are anywhere from five to fifteen and they're completely agnostic about the platform, the time of day. They don't need a logo that comes on before you, they watch the program. They watch it, you know, they'll, they'll binge watch a whole season or not, and then they'll flit over to a game. And, uh, you know, so what you have is a generation that's going to grow up where that is normal. Mm-hmm. So the wind demographically is at your back. Um, and if you can stay around long enough, the way we do business is going to be the norm by providing content that is not in a time slot that is available 24 by 7 around the world on multiple platforms. So this is, you know, an incredible development, and it's the data just shows it. 
Um, and the networks are responding that way, and so are the studios, and they're in our world, and, and you know, there's crossover going on, but they don't have the magic formula yet, and we don't have the magic formula yet. So I think there's a, a point where everybody's going to sit around the table, and you'll see a few projects where the big players are involved with, with independents like us, um, but not so much where... You, you sell your web series to a network or a network creates a web series and puts it online, but that somehow the two, the two uh, groups kind of merge and produce this new hybrid uh, product where everybody's, uh, everybody's good at something and they all contribute together to make the next, the next thing, you know, because if you if you can say one thing about web series producers is they are nimble and they are very efficient and they get product out there, good high quality product out there rather quickly mm-hmm. and at low cost. If you can say great things about the networks and studios, which you should, they produce absolutely beautiful programming. They market like no one in the world and they are very, very good at what they do. They are less nimble. And for, you know, very understandable reasons. They have a large process uh, that they bring into uh, play. So there's some middle ground there, I think, that hasn't happened yet. But certainly the IT, the technology, the bandwidth, the smart TVs, the pipes, those are all going to come to fruition very quickly, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And that will support this this melding, I think, as best I can figure mm-hmm. And then the interesting dimensions, of course, and then you layer on the, the cultural dimensions. Well, does that mean that a, you know, a French web series producer could work with a Hollywood studio? Yeah, sure. Does it mean that you could do tremendous transmedia projects where from the ground up a web series could also be producing a graphic novel, a, you know, a video game, a feature film? Yeah, sure. Well, cool. So the future is bright. I like the future from Richard Cutting's point of view. That's nicer. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's always this stuff. You know, people were producing cars before there was an interhighway, an interstate highway system, but they kept producing cars down muddy roads, and then all of a sudden there were trucks, and then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, it, it's it's always that way. It's it's mm-hmm. not smooth, continuous development of all the elements that are necessary to produce the next really flowering evolution and brilliant product, you know. Yeah, but and, we always seem and, to and, figure it out. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's stress along the way, and I guess that's natural, you know. Well, I think that's one theme I've noticed this year with web series is everyone realizing that they're having a hard time making money and they want to change that because mm-hmm. there's been a lot more experimentation lately, like YouTube doing sub- subscriptions and um, uh, advertisers trying to pull in trying yeah. to prove to advertisers what the numbers are so advertisers will put, pour in more money. Yeah. Probably motivated partly because Hollywood or certain big studios are jumping more into web series too, so they're motivated to yeah. <laughs> convince people. So it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out next year or two, a couple of years. Hmm. Hopefully. Yeah, well, I we'll think come that, back I and ask you then. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think the two major developments, if, 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 if you could have a wish list, would be financing on the front end and then a more stable revenue picture on the back end. In other words, if you go do an indie film, you know what you're doing. You've got your script, you've got whatever materials you are, you sit across the table for people and you go and have financing rounds and you build your layers of financing. 
you know, you package it and then you shoot it and distribute it and you're doing foreign pre-sales and all that. I mean, there's a model there, in other words, for the front end and the back end. And what we don't have is that, you know. And once those two pieces start to gel, I, I think you'll see a real acceleration. Mm-hmm. What I see as the good news is we're not fighting for shelf space in the classic way anymore. You know, we're not right. all going to fight over the 8 o'clock time slot. And, but we will still fight over, you know, far, the equivalent of foreign pre-sales, like, you know, who's going to be big in Belgium and how much money are you going to make mm-hmm. uh, to recoup your costs for your investors? Um, but then again, you, you, you are immediately addressable 24 by 7 by all audiences. You don't have to ship film prints around. You don't have all of the costs that the major features have to incur to, to come back to a profit, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's where the technology is our friend. And so then it becomes a marketing game. How do you get the eyeballs on your program? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's money. That's big money. Yeah. Yeah, marketing's huge. And the studios and the networks are the, are the masters of that. They are they are absolutely beautifully expert at that. You know mm-hmm. they know marketing. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to learn from them. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we've learned a lot about web series, Milgram Fast Walkers, and uh, UFOs. I am so. not going to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just just telling you. <laughs> well, you know what they say on the inside of the UFO world. If you see lights or things that you don't know what they are, you suspect, run away. It's not a phenomenon that you run toward. Mm. <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> no alien in the right mind wants to study me, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as we start to wrap it up, Let's do some shameless promotion time. Shameless self-promotion time. If you can Absolutely. tell our listeners where they can find you and your series on the web, and also please promote any other projects that you have already out or that are coming up that you want to talk about. Well, sure. Uh, thank you for that. We are an independent uh, television show. We're called Milgram and the Fast Walkers. We can be found at uh, www.fastwalkerseries.com. That's our main site. And if you go on, um, you you can find us easily on Facebook, and I recommend that because that's how we communicate to uh, all of our fans, and and we do major announcements generally through Facebook and Twitter. And then we uh, have other places where we are. We're on Coldcast TV, which is a big one for us. We had over a 2 million episode views there. On uh, YouTube, we are called The Fast Walker Series. And on Twitter, our handle is The Fast Walkers. And um, we are also on Blip. So you can find us at all those places. We come up fairly easily in search under Milgram and the Fast Walkers. Mm-hmm. And so you can find us at all those places. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just completed a Western, which is a great project, called Day of the Gun. I play a baddie. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was great doing a Western. That's a lot of fun. Uh, the director is Wayne Shipley, and he's a terrific guy, and this is a Western shot in Maryland, and Eric Roberts is in it. That'll be out later this summer. There is a Kickstarter campaign going on now for Garden of Sin, H-E-D-O-N, and that is a really cool horror picture by Kevin Kangas, who has uh, did Fear of Clowns and Fear of Clowns 2. He's been distributed by Lionsgate. And that is on Kickstarter now. He's doing a very interesting thing 
which is he's already shot the movie, and if he hits the number on Kickstarter, he will release it for free. Oh, oh wow. wow. Yeah, so it's a whole new way of looking at Kickstarter, uh, and uh, the movie is called Garden of Seedon. Um, we have so many great uh, web series here in this area. Thurston, the Western, which is terrific. Anacostia, Anthony uh, Anderson, and then uh, Orange Juice in, in Bishop's Garden, uh, which has been on for a long time, as has Anacostia. Web series are pretty prevalent around here. Hmm. This is the Maryland, D.C. market. So everyone check all those out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really curious about the Kickstarter movie now. I'm going to check it out. I I'm really interested about the Western, too. I like a good Western. Oh, yes. Yeah, the Western's Day of the Garden of Heden is the uh, the horror picture on Kickstarter. Garden of Heden. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, is there anything else you'd like to add? I just want to thank all of our fans who have been so great. We can't thank you enough, and we can't live without you, and we can't wait to bring you Season 2. And we will be starting our Indiegogo campaign in two weeks, so please stand by for that and our Season 1 three-episode finale coming up within two weeks. Hi, my name is David Peterson. I'm the creator of the Dothraki language for HBO's Game of Thrones and the alien language and culture consultant for Sci-Fi's Defiance, and you're listening to Genretainment. <clears throat> Special thanks to Richard for chatting with us, and we wish Milgram and the Fast Walkers luck with upcoming episodes. Now let's get to a bonus interview with Warehouse 13 stars Eddie McClintock and Joanne Kelly. Sci-Fi Pulse Radio's Ian Cullen helped us out with that one. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey. Good, thank you. Right, uh, my first question really I've got uh, is, is for Jack. Um, you know, it's um, Jamie Murray, she's now doing Defiance. I know that she's coming back into Warehouse 13 for an episode, but there was, there was something neat a while back about um, a spin-off series of HG Wells. As, is that kind of like being put to bed sort of thing now, or do you still hope to do a movie or something you know, not with that? Well, you know, we we uh, Bob Goodman and I, one of the one of the other one of my uh, other writers on the show here, uh, and I pitched a, a series for HG, and I think um, at the time we pitched it as a period piece uh, in 1890s New York, as she was kind of a Sherlock Holmes kind of character, also scouting for Warehouse 13. Um, so it was, uh, uh, but you know, those things get expensive, <laughs> and I think that. And I think that just development slates get filled up with other things, and so they take their time. Nothing's ever dead in Hollywood. Uh, sure, a movie would be great. I'd love to do a movie with that character. Um, I'd love to do the series. I'd love to have her back on the show occasionally just playing HG in our world. So uh, I, can't, I can't say that anything's in the offing, but I can say that I'm open to anything anybody wants to do because I love the character. I love the relationship and the dynamic she has both with our characters and with the world in general. And I think it would be a really dynamic, fun character to have on TV that kind of isn't there right now. Um, uh, that sort of metrosexual uh, period piece woman who who is smarter than anybody else in the room. I, I'd love to I'd love to dive into that sometime. Mm -hmm. 
and, and Jamie Murray's just so good at playing those sort of characters well. I mean, you know, yeah. I remember from back in the day when she was on Hustle over here in the UK. So. Um, yeah, she's, she's fantastic. You know, uh, the, the, one of the great things about about being on Warehouse 13 is, um, you know, when you're when you're on a successful show, successful people want to be a part of it, and. Um, so I think we've been really lucky in regards to our guest cast and, um, you know, having James Marsters and Anthony Head, you know, in the same, in the same show, uh, in the same season, you know, it's pretty cool. I know the legions of Buffy fans are just going to go crazy. Um, Polly Walker, and not just the fact that they're, that they have, um, fans, but that they're also great actors, you know? And I mean, I, I um I would do well to to sit back and and take notes a lot of times because um you know the talent that that we've been able to have come through has has been really great and I, it's a testament to the show and and to the writing and to the network. So. They they were they I have to say they they both uh, dove in uh, dove in uh, feet first into 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 our family and really fit in nicely. I mean they. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, the first episode, as you know, is was is mostly more James than Polly. Polly has uh, a couple of beats in it, and then uh, Polly comes back later in the season and has a very uh, a very big episode, episode uh, 18, with with uh, Artie and, and and Pete and Micah, and they have and they sort of partner up together in search of an artifact, which is kind of fun. So they they were um, they were just great. I mean, they they you know it's nice that you 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 get actors and they understand the genre. And then, as Eddie was saying, they're also tremendous actors, so they can really play into the sci-fi fantasy of it, and also bring you some real good, you know, just some real good acting, if you know what I mean. They're just, they just, they just fit right into the group. They joined us at our level, and that's always, that's always welcome and exciting. And then we've got, um, uh, you know, coming up this season, we've got, uh, as has been announced, Joel Gray is coming to join us in episode 14 with uh, Steve Valentine and Nora Zetner. Um, in uh, uh, in episode uh, 13, we do we do a, we do an episode where Pete and Micah fall into the world of noir, film noir, uh, and uh, we're joined by Missy Pyle and Enrico Colantoni, uh, sort of a Galaxy Quest reunion. Uh, two people also who had a who just who just fit in with. Our, I mean, Enrico had such a great time on the show. He came back to hang out on the set on another episode just because he liked yeah. everybody so much. Yeah. And he um, said the vibe on he goes, man, the vibe on this set is unlike anything I've ever experienced. I just want to come and hang out with you guys. And, uh, you know, if I may say so, it, it, it really comes from the top down. Jack sets a tone on the show. You know, it's it, the tone is basically... Well, we also make sure that when they show up, everybody gets a hooker in their hotel room, so that makes you confused. <laughs> there you go. And, and people really respond to that. Shave dogs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we also... And Missy sings in the episode, which is also a lot of fun. Um, we have uh, 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 Ricardo uh, Chivara. Ricardo Chivara, Liam, uh, uh, Charlie Weber comes on to play um, to, to play with us and see in episode six. Um, Cynthia Watros. Cynthia Watros is in episode yeah seventeen. Um, uh, I say six or I, when I say six I mean sixteen. Sorry, it's the, the ten episode thing that throws me. Um, and of course Anthony Head is coming to join us uh, uh, for the last three episodes and. Uh, and he uh, turns out to be uh, quite a powerful character. Uh, he played, as, as it's been released, he plays an, a, a, a 16th century alchemist, rogue alchemist named Paracelsus, 
And uh, I like to joke that, that our show is probably one of the only shows on TV that you can have a great time, laugh, cry, and get course credit for watching. Because <laughs> yeah. we, we, uh, we do lots of teaching. Um, quick question for, for Joanne. Um, Joanne, you, 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 did a, you did a couple of episodes last season um, where you, you were working very, very closely with Claudia and you were taking Claudia out into the field. And do, would you like to do more of those kind of episodes where it's, where it's just you girls? Because, you know, I, I just found that, you know, the uh, dynamic between, between those two characters kind of fun to watch. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I love the mix and match episodes. Uh, I, I think, you know, Eddie and I are such old hands at being, um, being together all the time. And there's a sort of ease when, when we um, do our episodes together. But the mix and match are, are fun. They're different. It's a different stride. Um, I like to see, you know, the, the way that uh, Micah's and Claudia's relationship has, like, kind of grown as their relationship has grown. Uh, we see, you know, sort of at the beginning in season one, a big sister, little sister kind of a deal. And as Allison herself and Claudia, the character, has gotten older, we see them more, um, you know, on equal footing, which has been really interesting to explore. Cool. Um, well, one last question for Jack before I go. Um, I, um, I I noticed that um, I actually read somewhere that you're you're likely to be exploring the, uh, the the thing with Claudia that she's essentially a caretaker at the warehouse. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? I'm sorry, just the first one. Uh, the, the, the what with Claudia? Um, that that she's kind of like a caretaker at the warehouse that she she potentially could be replacing Mrs. Fredericks. It was actually. I read somewhere about it, and I actually yeah. read in the episode. And is, is, are we going to see something about that this season? Absolutely. Uh, actually, that's a big that's a big driver to our season finale. Um, we've always teased that Claudia has a destiny at the warehouse beyond uh, just being an agent. That uh, and one of the things we'll learn uh, uh, into into certainly in season uh, four point five, and even into season five that we've been talking about here in the writers' room these days, is that there are certain people destined to to be connected to the warehouse, be in the life of the warehouse, no matter what the world does or what the world looks like, they will always be connected. And Claudia is just one of those people that was destined to to be here as you as you uh as you hear you'll you'll hear Artie talk about it in, in season four point five that she was kind of she was kind of born to this. And um so yeah we, we tap on it a couple of times. As you know last year we, we had Mrs. Frederick uh, take Claudia along with her to see the birth of an artifact so she can have a little peek behind the curtain into what Mrs. Frederick does. And uh, we're going to keep playing that dynamic of of Claudia's starting to sense her own connection to the warehouse, starting to sense that she actually is, in a way, organically connected to Warehouse 13 in a way that's beyond what anybody else is. And it's kind of beautiful. And Allison plays it very nicely, very subtly, and and plays into it. We, we, we'll see it in episode 14 as well. There's a cool story where, um, I'm sorry, episode 15. There's a great story where, where uh, she and Kelly Hu are on a are on a, 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 a hunt in the warehouse to find out what's something's going wrong with the warehouse, and they're trying to figure it out. Kelly, Kelly and and uh, uh, Stephen Artie also are with the, in that story, and it's kind of fun. We, so yeah, we definitely will tap on that. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. And and I'm also curious to know uh, which um, hot, sexy Hollywood actress Eddie would want to play his sister. Oh, my. <laughs> that is, which, that is uh, a dangerous question. What what actress would I want to play my, my sister? Yep. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence. 
Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure Jack will, will be will be used to hear that and be be uh, putting the films out to get her signed up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm sure. I'm sure she'll. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody online knows Jennifer Lawrence, if anybody online knows Jennifer Lawrence and can connect me with her, please help because I, I don't know if I'll reach her. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm John Rogers. I created the show Leverage and Rogue Transformers, and you're listening to Genretainment. We're glad to see Warehouse 13 back. Now yeah. let's hear Mark's chat a little with recent Warehouse 13 guest stars Enrico Calantoni and Missy Pyle, who Mark's may or may not be related to. It's a mystery. <laughs> Very cool. But the real question is, are you, are you both related to Ernie Pyle? Of course. Famous journalist. That would be cool. <laughs> Ah, I'm in black and white! What's our next move? Hello, handsome. Tell that to my aching jaw. Don't do this! No! Hi, guys. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. Hey, Mark. Hey. Uh, well, first, I want to say real quick that I'm a big fan of, of uh, you two. I uh, love your work, Enrico, especially big fan of your work on Veronica Mars. And oh, uh, thank you. Oh, I didn't know. And Missy, been a big fan of your work for years, and not just because we have the same last name, although it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I know, how exciting. I know. Are we related? I, 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 I suspect distantly, maybe, but we'll, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I have a quick question. We haven't heard much about who your characters are, so I'll give you a semi-cryptic way out so you don't spoil the show, but give us some clues. Uh, could you explain your character in one word, and what it, would it be and why? Rico, please go first. Uh, uh, stuck in a world madly in love with uh, Missy's character. That's and I don't know if you heard the one word thing uh, about stuck. <laughs> stuck. Stuck. Love. Stuck. Mad. Stuck. Mad. Stuck. Stuck. Love. They're all combined. It's all one word. <laughs> Mine. Oh God, she's. Um. Yeah. I feel like mad, madly. Stuck madly. I mean, I don't mean to steal your same thing, but it's also like this platinum, everything is hazy. I don't know why. For me, the first word that comes to mind for you, Missy, is breathy. I just kept feeling like the, the character was very breathy. And you don't understand. Heaving, you need to help me. Heaving bosom. <laughs> That's two where we can hyphenate. <laughs> yeah, hyphenated, heaving bosom. I'll put it all together with that. And, and Enrico was tense. tense. There was a lot of tension. Tense. Well, you were tense. You were worried about these guys. Tense, yeah, tense. coming into your world and trying to steal your girl. Tense. They're trying to they're trying to take your girl. They're trying to make shake your world up. They're who who are these people in the middle of your world? It's yeah, it's kind of cool. You could say writer. Ah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pitching on your words because uh, writer Sean Truth. Is that the word? Chanteuse? Oh, yeah. Chanteuse. Yes, that's a good one. Actually, you're but punching up my words is what you're doing, Jack. Oh. Welcome. Oh. You're welcome. Great, great. And, um, okay. Did we do it? I, I think we so. I think, I think I've said this even off the record that it was one of the most enjoyable cast and crew experiences I've ever had. 
I mean, Missy was there at the beginning, and Jack was uh, just... I was in and out. Like crazy off the wall, just happy, energized. I wanted to... I think I went back months later just to watch him work, didn't I? You did. You said, said, can I just come back and hang out at the set? Yeah, and just hang out with you guys, because it was so delightful to be there. It was was very delightful. I mean, I had a ball when they told me Enrico was doing it. I think they told me that. I think they told us both that the other was doing it. Yeah, that's why we got you each to agree. That's why they got us to agree. I was like, oh, God, yes, yes, yes. And then I was like, they told me. And he was like, oh, they told me. <laughs> and then uh, Eddie, when we got there, Eddie was so excited to have, you know, company. Oh, we talked about Galaxy Quest. I mean, we talk about Galaxy Quest all the time. We even quoted it on uh, in our season premiere last year. Claudia quoted it, uh, never give up, never surrender. So so we're huge. We're all huge Galaxy Quest fans. So when we had this little re- mini reunion, it was uh, we were all just we were all just so excited. It was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I was a little disappointed that we didn't have to show up in Thermion. Uh, well, I didn't miss in the wigs, at least. If only I'd known that was an option. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if it was a legal Next. option, but... Well, you're in black and white. I'm not sure it would play. <laughs> anyway, we don't know. We're, you're in black and white the whole episode, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, we sort of had this black and white tinge to us, didn't we, Missy? Yes, you played yeah, it. You played it black, black and white, sort of gray. You it, you played it in black it, and white too, which is different. yeah, we totally played in black and white. The Thermians, This is a little tidbit. When they caught the historical documents, they were in black and white. So that's right. When, when they actually created these characters. For them, I mean these, these alter, these, what do you call them, alter egos? When we actually created them, they were in gray, shades of gray, because the Thermians saw the TV show in black and white. In black and white. Wow, that's deep. That's a deep connection. Right. <laughs> I think I think I know I speak for the cast. I, I'm absolutely certain I speak for the cast when they when I say that 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 they had a magnificent time working with these two. I mean they they still go on and on. We were I was out with at dinner with Joanne last Saturday because we all went to see Eddie's new Eddie's movie, and we were talking about how much fun it was working with the two of you. Joanne was just saying, oh, we've got to find a way to have them back on the show. Yeah. I've already actually thought of a way to get you guys back. So, oh, cool. so I guess I'll have to tell one well, of you know the other ones back and tell the other ones. Just like doing back. the camp film noir. That, you know, just was to, hilarious. Was so to play in that world was just like, oh, my God. Everything else was gravy. You did it so well, too. Well, we'll see. I, I I used to do a lot of sketch comedy, and I used to do this like film noir lady. I mean, it's you know, it's just really fun to to do that and to actually have an excuse for it to keep it real is, is definitely a challenge. But um, just to, to stand next to you, Enrico, just like and saying those oh things to you. Oh my god! Like I, I love you channeling. You kind of channeled Judy Holiday a little bit. Maybe. Who I, I did? She wanted to. Yes, Enrico, you did. That was what was so special about it. I think Missy and I could have gazed in each other's eyes for a whole like hour and a half. Just like, uh, please, the whole season. Right? It was so the great, fun. The great thing that I noticed with you guys working doing, working the noir dialogue was you could really, it's you can just you can so sink your teeth into it because it's not pedestrian. It's all very, the words kind of are bitten off, and I love and you guys sort of really sort of. You know, bit into it when you when you especially in the scene in the alley, Enrico with the gun. Oh, good. I haven't seen it. Oh, right. Well, I'm sure I should. But I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna, 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 gonna trust you on that, Jack. No, it was great. It was you know it was when you when you when you're because I I love the way noir villains noir people hold guns. They don't they don't really point them at they should yeah, hold them at waist level. They just kind of 
keep them right there, ready to go. Yeah. You gave them that. Yeah. You don't finish. Yeah, the, I, you don't finish the words. You do a lot of head <laughs> you know, tilting of the head. Yes, but it, I it's, think it's a lot of, a lot of I, I mean, it's kind of all rooted in that old sort of American standard speech, right? From like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine Hepburn and and just yeah. how actors were even taught back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. It was a clipped sort of standard American speech that everyone had. So I don't know if it was the noir that made it up or just actors were trained to talk like that at that well, time. Well, a lot of the noir too is is so much of it plays in the looks. Like we would cut right. to, you know, we cut to somebody giving somebody a look of, you know, the look of death or the look of fear or the look of so much of it plays in the dun 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 when you see somebody's eyes. Yeah, you know, and, and McMurray would throw a strip of light across your eyes like Joan Crawford. Mm-hmm. Did you keep the part where he, uh, where Eddie uh, throws the gun back? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Did that make the cut? Oh, I love that. Well, well I, maybe I love it because I pitched it, but <laughs> no. But it, yeah, there's a moment no, where Eddie. No, it was so noir. Yeah, there was a moment when Eddie takes takes his gun away from him. Takes Eddie takes uh, Enrico's gun away from him, and then at the end of it, just throws it back to him, like you know. Just like, just be careful with that thing. I think it's such a it's yeah, such a yeah. noir private detective move because he does he knows he know he's he's he's, he's what is it uh, un, unkillable. He's he's yeah. immune to, to danger. You know, that's great. I'm glad it made it. And an absolute ball. I mean, it was from the moment we got there, everyone was so great. I just sort of like, I just want to be on. I just want to keep doing this show. Yeah, we all do. Yeah, we figured. We tried to figure out a way to keep us on. Oh, yeah. One more I, time way to get I think the best thing to do is to blackmail someone. And to- <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Crystal Lowe from Primeval New World, and you are listening to Genretainment. Well, thank you to Sci-Fi for letting us talk to the stars and the guest stars, and we now know that Warehouse 13 is nearing its end. I know, so sad. Sci-Fi recently announced that it has renewed Warehouse 13 for an abbreviated fifth and final season. Now, we're sorry to see it end, but happy at least that Sci-Fi gave them enough warning to hopefully wrap up the show in the way that the writers and fans will like. Yes, that's good at least. Yeah, that doesn't always happen. No, unfortunately not. Well, so that's it for today's Genretainment. Not our final episode. <laughs> no, it's not our final episode. Our new, uh, newest episode on this new channel. Yes. Uh, we'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. You can also check out the other great shows on this channel like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and more. And if you look on our old Blog Talk radio channel, you can look up months of our archived episodes. But never fear, we'll have lots of great guests coming up, so we'll fill in the new site with tons of great new shows, too. Until Until next next time. time.